You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. I'm going to read a passage of scripture before I get to Exodus chapter 14. If you've got your copy of God's word, that's where I'm headed, Exodus 14. But I'm going to read to you out of Psalm 85 where uh, the psalmist writes and he says, O Lord, you showed favor to your land. You restored the captivity of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all of their sin. You withdrew all of your fury. You turned away from your burning anger. And then he prays, restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your indignation toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not yourself revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? I've had so many people over the last couple of weeks ask me about my opinion of what's going on at Asbury. Asbury, of course, is it's a Wesleyan holiness. We call it a Methodist school, but it's really, it's a Wesleyan holiness. They're, they're part of the Methodist family, but they are the, we call them the shouting Methodists. Um, uh, that uh, whatever is happening there has spread uh, to Lee College. Lee is Pentecostal. And... Um, when you go from there, we're told now that it's here at Samford, which is Baptist. Um, you, you got Wesley and Holiness, Pentecostal and Baptist, um, which may be the three denominations that are left that actually believe the Word of God is the Word of God. Uh, it's interesting that God doesn't recognize denominational lines, but something is happening there, and um, and the only thing I can share with you would be this. We're, you know, people say, well, how does this start? And uh, how do you have revival? I don't know that there's a formula for revival. Uh, the fact of the matter is, Jesus says the Spirit blows where it will. Um, and uh, evidently, the Spirit is there at Asbury, Lee, and uh, evidently here at Samford as well. I do know this. Uh, that the Spirit of God will move on people when they're serious about him. When they get serious about him, when they want to be right themselves, when they're not uh, afraid to confess their sins to God, uh, that seems to be the essential thing. Richard Owen Roberts, who is a good friend of mine and is a great man of God and is still living, um, he's up, I think, into his 90s now, he says that the essential element to revival is holiness. That there must be a holiness among the people of God. They need to turn away from their sin. The second thing is this. They bind themselves together in prayer. 
not in great massive groups, but small groups. If you read about these three places, all of this started in small groups, small groups of college students, small groups of college students who bind themselves together and pray for God to move in their midst. They become obsessed with the presence and the glory of God. And the third thing is this, is once God moves on them, they usually, not usually, but they will always put themselves at God's disposal, do through me whatever you will, Lord. Now there is not great emotionalism. Folks, if I've learned anything about the move of God, I've learned this. A lot of times extreme emotionalism We'll put it to death. But when God moves in a place, there's generally an uncommon quietness that falls over people. That God's moving. We're in his presence. And um, it almost restrains us from even speaking. So just to answer that, to talk about that, and to believe that God can do it. Right here at Valleydale, I believe it, I pray for it. In fact, all I can think of the last couple of weeks has been the old hymn. I remember singing it as a boy on Wednesday nights in a church that was not air-conditioned, and we had fans, and uh, you would burn up in the summertime in that place. And... um, The preacher would all have us get on our knees and pray, and then as we stood up, we would all sing the song, Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my gentle cry, while on others you are calling, do not pass me by. My prayer in these days is this to the Lord, please, Lord, don't pass me by. If you're pouring out your spirit right now in certain places, do not pass me by. So if you've got your Bibles now, just in a spirit of worship, take your Bibles and look with me because that's what I want to talk to you about is I want to talk to you about worship. And we left these Hebrews as sitting ducks out in the wilderness. Uh, They were bait in a trap for Pharaoh and we got to get them out of there. Uh, Or at least we need to see how God's going to get them out of there and uh, what happens to them because they're in a panic. And I read to you from Psalm 106 last week Uh, that the psalmist said they were in in rebellion here by the sea. Uh, They'd come to rebellion in their crying out to the Lord. As they were crying out, they, they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And the psalmist in 106 calls this rebellion. And so they're crying out to God. They're in a panic. And I want you to see what happens when we get into a panic and what is the answer to the panic as God's people when we get into it. 
What do I do when I'm panicked because of the circumstances? They're looking around at all of these things that have surrounded them. They're looking at the insurmountable, insurmountable obstacle, the Red Sea that's right there in front of them. And then right behind them is the unconquerable army of Egypt. And then on both sides of them, the unnavigable wilderness or desert of the Sinai. What do they do? They panic. Um, one of the great casualties of, uh, of, of panic is direction. And I'm going to talk to you about that because when we panic, we don't know where to go or what to do. But now that's kind of leading me into where I want to take you. Moses comes to them and he says this, do not fear. Stop the panic. I told you that that's a negative imperative. It's the strongest expression in the Hebrew to say stop something. Stop what you're doing. He says, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord. Now, Kirkwood just read it. We read it last week. Kirkwood just read it again in Hebrews chapter 11 that when Moses came out, he came out in faith. He did not come out in fear. But now listen to what the Lord says to him. The Lord said to him in verse 15, why are you crying out to me? Now, he's saying that to Moses, and I've just told you that Moses came out in faith. He did not come out in fear, and I get that from Hebrews chapter 11, and I get it from what Moses tells the people here. You stand still. You watch. Watch for the salvation of God. So why is God looking at Moses saying, Moses, why are you crying out to me? Well, let me explain something that I think is going on. I don't want to make more out of it than is there, and neither do I want to make less out of it, but I want to show you something that I think the Lord kind of uh, opened my eyes to this week, and it's this. God speaks to the leader. God speaks to Moses, and what he does is he takes the cries of the people, the rebellion of the people, and he imputes that to Moses as if Moses is the one who is crying and wanting to go back to Egypt. Now that becomes almost a picture here, church. It becomes a picture of Jesus Christ and how God imputes our sin onto Christ and puts him on the cross at Calvary and he bears our sin. We don't bear our sin anymore. Do you, you, you do understand that, don't you? We do not bear our sin anymore. If you're in Jesus Christ, he bore your sin at Calvary. And so Moses stands here almost like a type of Christ, and God takes the cries and the rebellion of the people, and he imputes it on Moses, and he says to Moses, he puts it on Moses' account. Let me, say, let me state it that way. And he looks at Moses, and he says, why are you standing here crying out to me? And what he's going to tell the people is this. He's going to tell the sons of Israel to go forward. I want you to move forward. Now, all they can do is stand there in panic. All they can do is look at that insurmountable obstacle, the Red Sea, that is there, this unconquerable army behind them, unnavigable wilderness on either side of them, and God tells them to move forward. And the question is this, how then can I get my eyes off of what is causing me to panic? I'm in a panic this morning. I'm in a panic because this is going on in my life. I'm in a panic because that's going on in my life. I've got some kind of panic at work. I've got a panic at school. I've got some kind of panic that is taking place in my life. And you're telling me that the people of God can move from panic and out of panic. Well, how do you do that? Now, listen to me carefully. 
worship. Worship. You'll discover here this morning, at least I hope and pray you will, and I hope and pray that you'll discover this in your own life, that God will take you out of the panic when you begin to worship. You get your eyes off of all the things, the insurmountable, the undefeatable, you know, the unnavigable, all the things that are around you, and put your eyes, as Moses says, you know, put your eyes on the Lord. Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord. Watch it what God is going to do. Now, this whole section here is wrapped up in worship. You've got the worship that takes place on the night of the Passover, which is a horrible night. The firstborn in every home that's not covered by the blood uh, is dying and dies. And in the midst of that, you've got worship. And now, in the midst of what I've described to you several times with these Hebrews in this impossible situation, you're going to have worship when they make it through the sea and they get to the other side. So it's interesting that worship oftentimes comes in the midst of the unbelievable situations that we're in. So I want you to watch this. I want you to look how you can learn to worship rather than leaning into panic in your life. So let me begin. I've only got two points and, um, you know, 56 sub points, but let me give you the two points this morning. Number one, worship grows out of an obedience. Now I'm in chapter 14 and I'm going to pick it up in verse, uh, let me pick it up in verse 14 because that's such a great verse. That's a verse that's very close to Deb in my heart. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. Now, here it is. Obedience is going to be the secret to worship. And worship is the secret to pulling you out of a panic. Now, did you get that? Obedience will be the secret to worship. Worship is the secret to pulling you out of panic. And Moses the Lord is going to show you how he's going to guide them in three ways. Number one, God guides us in the right direction. Now look at what he says here. He says, I want you to go forward. When the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward, move forward. That's the direction uh, that I want you to go. Well, that's dead into the Red Sea. They literally are caught between the devil and the deep red sea. And so he's telling them, you're, you're to go forward. Now, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. God, we don't see this. It, it, we don't see what you're going to do. We don't understand. And if we did not know the rest of the movie, we, uh, movie, <laughs> Lord have mercy. If we did not know the rest of the story, we would be thinking at this point, that's crazy. Why would God tell them to march down into the sea? But let me tell you, look at this. It is a clear word from God. Go forward. May be impossible in your mind. You may think that this is something you cannot do, but I am telling you, go forward. That's clear. In May of 1864, you have the first battle where Grant faces Lee. And it literally becomes, honestly, a hell on earth. It's the battle known as the Battle of the Wilderness. 
there had been this incredibly long, dry spell in uh, Virginia, and um, they meet in the middle of a forest there called the wilderness. They meet there, and as these two armies clash, all of the sparks from these guns and cannons set the woods on fire. Uh, The tragedy of uh, the battle of the wilderness is that most men burned to death. They were not shot. They burned to death. The Union lost 17,000 soldiers. Most of them burned. The Confederacy lost 7,000 men. Most of them burned. And when Grant decided we've lost enough here in this wilderness, in the midst of this fire, in the midst of all this smoke, he pulled the Union Army out and back. And as he pulled them out and back, it began to rain. And it just didn't rain a little bit. It began to pour so that all of a sudden the ground was saturated and it just churned up into mud with all these men and all these horses and all of these wagons. And they pulled out of the wilderness in the night and they headed back and all the Union Army was convinced we're headed to the road that'll take us back across the Virginia line, back into Pennsylvania, back out of here and toward Washington. But that night they came to the road that would take them north and seated there in the dark, in the rain, a shadow with a lit cigar, and it was Grant, and he wasn't pointing to the north, he was pointing to the south. He said, you keep moving forward. You go this way, this way, this way. He directed his own troops in the middle of the night in the pouring rain. That's the word of God to us. Grant never would retreat. He would, he would re-prosecute the war in another place, but he never would retreat. He knew that the South could not last. By just attrition, they would give out. They could not, which is exactly what happened, but he kept pushing forward, forward, forward. Listen to me. That's the direction God calls the church. He never calls us back. Now, I had to use the illustration from Grant because there's too much salty language in the illustration from Patton. Well, that's what he does. He's there. He blocks every other route. Have you thought about this? He blocks every other exit that these Hebrews could go through. Every other exodus he blocks except for that one that goes forward. And not only does he give us direction, but he guides us in protection. Look at the second thing that he comes and he says here. Uh, he, He comes and he tells us, beginning in verse 19, the angel of God, now watch this, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. I had a pastor from Louisiana yesterday call me. He says, I listened to every one of your sermons. He says, you're you're in uh, Exodus chapter three and, and tell me who the angel of the Lord is. And I shared with him who I think, I think this is the pre-incarnate Christ. That's my opinion. That's what I think. So hear the angel of God. I think it's the pre-incarnate Christ who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. Now get that in your mind. This cloud comes and it gets between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. 
Now, here is this cloud that now is going to guide them. And it moves now from in front of them to behind them. And it says that there was this darkness that was there. That word in the Hebrew is literally obscurity. It obscured the vision of the Egyptians. They could not see. They could not see what was in front of them. They could not see what was beside them. They could not see what was behind them. They were in a thick darkness. Now, this is the protection of God. And yet the other side of that is this. Look, this is the first nightlight ever mentioned in history. God gives them light at the night. He gives them light through the night. They're able to see what's going on. They're able to see what God is doing in front of them with the Red Sea. God's going to open that thing up, and God does that. Look at what it says down in um, verse, let me pick it up in verse 21. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night turned the sea into dry land so that the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Now, that's going to be stated again in just a little bit. God wants you to get this picture in your mind. There is this strong, and listen, I've seen all of these things on National Geographic and on all of these channels, you know, what happened that night, what was it, what took place, was there a win, was there ever a win, and, uh, you know, all of this stuff, and was it the Reed Sea and not the Red Sea, and all those kind of things. I'm gonna, I, want you to, I want you to look at chapter 15 for a moment in verse 8, and look at what we're told right there. This is what is said happened. In the midst of this song, you read these words, at the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. Now, do you say, well, is that what happened? God blasted through his nostrils air, and that was the east wind? Well, I don't know, but that's what the song says. I tell you, I think the reason it states it like that, and listen, this, this, this essentially is what it's saying, is God just went. <laughs> now, you have to be without a cold to do that, but I can't do it real hard this morning. But it's just God going. <laughs> now, that's, that's exactly what it's talking about. And do you know why I think it states it that way? is because this was no harder for God to do than for you just to snort. That this was not a difficult thing. People go on and on. Yes, from our perspective, it's a great miracle. It's unbelievable. But for God, it was just a, hmm. That's all it was. Nothing is too hard for our God. Let me show you a second thing, because it says that the water here, if you look back in chapter 14, it says that it turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Look at what it says back at the end of verse 8. It says, the flowing waters stood up like a heap, and the deep... The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. Now, there's not a woman here that doesn't know and understand that. You've had congealed salads before, right? And what do you do with a congeal? You mix up all of the stuff, and what do you do with it, ladies? Put it in the... This is an east wind in the Middle East. There's nothing cold about that. This is hot air. 
It's blowing from the east. And yet in the midst of a hot air, can you congeal anything in a hot air? God can. He congealed the Red Sea so that we're told that the waters stood up, congealed. The word in the Hebrew literally means to be thick. It took on a thickness as if it were congealed. Now, do you know what I think of when I read that? I think about, have y'all ever been through the, the uh, aquarium in Atlanta where you walk through that glass tunnel? And as you walk through that glass tunnel, you're kind of watching all this sea life. I, I'm not, I don't know. I'm not told this. I, I have no idea. I'm not so sure that when these Hebrews walked through that sea that they could look and they could see all of the, the, the sea life passing on. Or that might have congealed and fish were just, you know, I have no idea. But the water congealed. It got thick. And the Bible tells me they walked across on dry ground. There was not a bit of mud. There was not a mud hole here or a mud hole there. They walked across it on absolutely dry ground. Now, now, let me give you the third thing. And the third thing is this. He brings them to completion. God guides you in the direction that he wants you to go. He guides you with protection but he will guide you to completion. He will get you where he wants you to be. There's, this just popped in my mind. There's a great passage in Hebrews. I love it. I, I love to preach when I go in places, uh, to preach out of Hebrews chapter one and verse one and verse two and verse three and, and uh, verse four because it speaks of the superiority of Jesus Christ. And I want you to listen to this. It says this about Christ in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He's the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. Talking about Christ, he is the exact radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. That word upholds right there is the word Pharaoh. Now, not like Pharaoh in the Old Testament. This is Greek. The word Pharaoh in the New Testament means not only to hold up, it not only holds it up, but it means to carry it to its ultimate conclusion. Let me tell you, God holds your life up and he gets you where he wants you to be. Amen. He will take us, I am telling you, come what may in this crazy, wacky, weird world, he will take us one day to the very foot of the throne of Almighty God. That's where we're headed. That's where he'll take us. He brings all of this to completion. Look at verse 24. Y'all don't make me excited up here now. And the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud. Now, why does it state it like that? I just, when I read stuff like this, this is kind of the questions. I begin to ask questions. When I teach preaching, I teach these young guys, this is what you do. Start asking questions of the text. Why am I told that the Lord looks down through the pillar of fire and the cloud and he brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion? Because nothing obscures the vision of God. Nothing. There is nothing that hinders the eyesight of God. 
He can see through anything. He sees through this pillar of fire. He sees through this cloud. And what he does is he brings confusion into the army of the Egyptians. Now watch this. I'm just going to read through this and point this out to you. It's all I'm doing is just reading down through Scripture and pointing out what is here. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve. He made them drive with difficulty. Now, there's a difficulty in them steering this thing, which leads me to believe that once that last Hebrew got up out of that sea, that now suddenly all of this becomes muddy. Maybe it's beginning to seep water. I don't know. Maybe the congealed sea is beginning to uncongeal and it's beginning to seep water and they're having a difficult time driving a chariot through this mud. He made, he made them drive with difficult, difficulty. So much so the Egyptians said, now watch this, you have to watch the text. The Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel. For the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Do you, do you see this change in person? They're speaking of themselves now in the third person. Why are they doing that? Because at this precise moment, they didn't want to be the Egyptians. I'm serious as I can be. At this moment, they did not want to be the Egyptians. They're speaking of themselves in the third person. We, 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 we sure would like to be Hebrews right now. They're seeing how God is fighting for the Hebrews, and so they don't even call themselves Egyptians. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots, over their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. They had so much momentum, they were just moving on into the sea. And the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariot and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not one of them remained. And the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea. You see, he comes back and he tells you again, they walked through on dry land. The waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and they left the preacher alone. For a while, anyway. Now that's an amazing account right there. And how God brings them through that Red Sea and up to the other side, and he has them standing there on the banks of the Red Sea, and they're looking now as these Egyptians are washing up. Their bodies are washing up on shore. And you say, well, why, why in the world does God do that? You know, it's, it's, it's tragic. Listen, the Word of God tells us he doesn't, he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. But these Hebrews needed to see that I have an enemy no more. 
They needed to see that the people who had held them all their lives and their parents all their lives and their grandparents all their lives in bondage, those who were coming after them, pursuing them to take them back to either kill them or to take them back into slavery, they needed to see mentally, emotionally, personally, they needed to see that their enemy was defeated and was no more. And from this moment on, they never had to worry about Egypt again. You know, folks, we need that. In the sin in my own life, I long to see God defeat the sin and show me the dead demons. I need for him to show me this thing has been dealt with. This thing has no power over you any longer. And that's why I want to take you to Romans 8 and just read you. Romans 8 verse 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says then in verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Yes, rather who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? Who also intercedes for us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we're being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Pero Nicoma. Nico, Niki. Nike, the God of war, we conquer over all these things. And I think of the words of Christ to those 70 disciples who had been out preaching and casting out spirits and demons, and Jesus says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning. We need that. We need to hear that. We need to know that. That our enemy is defeated. That Christ has dealt with him. Amen. And that we are no longer in bondage or in slavery. And we no longer have to do the things that the flesh tell me to do. Now here's the interesting thing about all of this. The interesting thing, I'm going to preach one point and that's it today. <laughs> um, the, the, the interesting thing is this, church is that all of these Hebrews went through that Red Sea. Now, listen, some were excited. Some were looking at all the fish, I'm sure, if you could see them. Some were looking at the walls of water. Some were just as bold and just as excited and pumped up and enthused as they could be. But others that walked through there were just as terrified and trembling and fearful and unsure and But they're all going. All of them got through. All of them were at different places. But they all were saved by God in that uh, moment. And they're going to get to the other side. And they're going to praise God. They're going to give him praise. They're all going to stand there and praise him. Uh, and, and, and yet they all passed through in different places. Listen, I, I want you to understand something. Listen to me at this. 
It is not how much faith you've got. It's not the quantity of your faith. It's not even the quality of faith. I hear these television guys get on there and say, oh, if you have faith, you can do this, that, and the other. And then I hear others get on there and say, oh, if you have faith like me, or if you have faith like this one, or you have faith like that one. Listen, it's not the quantity of your faith. It's not the quality of your faith. It is the object of your faith. Who your faith is in. Now they get on this other side, and let me show you. I I don't have time. I can't preach this point, but they sing this song. This is the song of Moses. They're going to celebrate what God has done. They're all going to get there. They're all going to sing together. And they're going to exalt the Lord. Look at the very first line. I will sing to the Lord. By the way, this is the first song recorded in Scripture. First song recorded in Scripture. The song of Moses. They will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. Now, let me do this and I'll I'll quit. Go with me to Revelation chapter 15. And I'm going to take you to the last song recorded in Scripture. Chapter 15. And I want you to look at this. Beginning in verse 1, John writes and he says, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues. They're going to have seven bowls with seven plagues, and they're going to pour it out on the earth, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. That's that crystal sea, that that great glassy sea that is there before the throne. And now it's burning with fire, fire on top of the sea. I always wondered how that would happen until we had that gulf spill and they were burning that oil off the sea. And you could see literally the sea was burning. Here is this glass This glassy sea, this crystal sea burning with fire, and there are those who are in the midst of it. They're the ones who've been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name. They did not take the mark of the beast. They're standing on the sea of glass. They're holding harps of God. God gave them harps. And look at what they are singing. Let's look at this. Verse 3, and they sang the song of of Moses. And they combined it with another song. They sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Listen, let me tell you, the song of Moses was sung at the Red Sea. The song of the Lamb is sung at the Crystal Sea. The song of Moses sang of triumph over Egypt. The song of the Lamb sings of triumph over Babylon and the beast. The song of Moses told how God brought them out. The song of the Lamb sings of how God brings his people in. Moses' song is the first song. The song of the Lamb is the last song. The song of Moses is the song of the redeemed. The song of the Lamb is is the song of the raptured and the rescued. And as they sing, verse three, great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. They sing this, look at that. Oh, Lord, my God, how I in awesome wonder. 
And as you come to the second part of it in verse four, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty. They sing how great thou art, and they sing holy, holy, holy. And it's out of all of this that they move from their panic to worship, to praise. You know, I have a heart for the people of Ukraine. We have been on, Deb's been on four mission trips there. She and Courtney, I've been on three. We've taken all of the kids multiple times. I think of the places that I preached. I think of the places where I saw people come to Jesus Christ. And I see this horror of this war that's going on there. I don't know if you keep up with it. It's the first thing I'll look at in the mornings. I get up and I look through the London or through the English papers and I see what is currently going on. And I pray for the people. I pray for the Christians. I pray for those that we led to the Lord. And I wonder how many of them are, are there. How many of them are fighting? But there was a quote that I read this week from one of the Ukrainian worship leaders. He talked about their prayer and he said this, even if a nuclear attack happens, the hope we have is that we go home and we will be together with Jesus, the one we know who will help us. Now those are people that are living in a time when they could panic. And yet, they don't panic. They worship. Let's stand. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.